Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we have our final message in the series, The Power of the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 to chapter 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Putting It All Together. Years ago, I listened as a man explained how he had come to faith in Christ. He was a university student at UBC, that is the University of British Columbia. He had no Christian background and was somewhat negative about the Christian faith, although not based on any specific knowledge of it. And one day, a fellow student challenged him to at least give the Christian faith a fair hearing. He challenged him to read Romans. And so this young man sat down in his favorite pub and read the book of Romans. And it was intriguing because the argument seemed logical. And so in the following weeks, he got a notebook and decided to make an outline of the argument. He would sit in the pub, drink beer, and with an open notebook, outline the argument of Romans. And one day, a friend stopped by and noticed he was reading the Bible. And he said, Dave, you don't believe that crazy stuff, do you? And this young man, puzzling over that question, said something back that surprised even him. He said, you know, I actually think I do. Now, I tell this story because that young man who told me his story also said, that's the story of my conversion. Fascinating. The book of Romans is logical. It's engaging. And the more we read it, the more we're drawn into its compelling message. During these five weeks, we've only considered four of its chapters, that is, chapters five to eight, which I think form an interesting unit of thought or an interesting progression of thought. Let me suggest three things that mark this section. First, if one's paying very close attention to what one is reading, one immediately sees something different is underfoot in chapters 5 to 8. Chapters 1 to 4 has a polemical tone to it. I mean by that, it's an argument against the rabbinic Jewish conception that acceptance before God can be gained through personal efforts and the keeping of the law. Romans 1 to 4 argues that this only leads to frustration, hypocrisy, and failure. But my point is that the first four chapters present us with a logical progression of thought, an argument against the prevailing view. But in chapters 5 to 8, that logical, polemical style suddenly shifts. Suddenly, for the next four chapters, that is, chapters 5 to 8, we find that the first-person plural dominates. Paul says things like, we have peace, and we have gained access, and we rejoice, and Christ died for us, and and even we are now justified, and so forth. There is something rich and personal going on here. Indeed, the personal tones of chapters 5 to 8 form a kind of Christian confession, something all Christians say together, something if you were to say in your church or in some Christian gathering, well, every Christian would nod their head and say, yeah, that's true of me too. And so that's just one of the differences between chapters 1 to 4 and chapters 5 to 8. Now, second, if we're reading very slowly and carefully, we might notice that some of the words that are used now change. So if you're reading chapters 1 to 4, you would notice that words faith and to believe are used 33 times. But in chapters 5 to 8, those words are used only three times. Clearly, a change has happened. In the first four chapters, Paul has been showing that every single human being is a rebel against God, and therefore, they are the object of God's righteous anger. Furthermore, all human beings, both Jews and Gentiles, are incapable of reforming themselves, that all their efforts fall far short of God. 
And then in wondrous mercy, God has sent his own son to do for us what we could never do on our own. The son paid for our sins and satisfied the righteous requirements of God. Our only response can never be to reform ourselves, but our only response is faith and believing, trusting him and his sacrifice to be sufficient. And so we are saved by grace, through faith, and by faith alone. And as I have said, faith and belief do not form the centerpieces of chapters 5 to 8. We now find words like life and to live, words that are used 24 times in chapters 5 to 8, but only used two times in chapters 1 to 4. Clearly, the emphasis has shifted from what Christ has accomplished on our behalf to how life is infused into the one who believes. It's interesting to note that in both chapters 1 to 4 and then in chapters 5 to 8, the word righteousness continues to be in use, but even here there is a distinction. In the first four chapters, the word is used to describe what many Bible teachers have called a forensic righteousness or a legal righteousness. And so Paul teaches that even while we are not righteous, Christ's righteousness is legally applied to those who believe. But in chapters 5 to 8, we see that Paul is using this same word to show how we are to become righteous. That is, we're learning obedience to Christ who is righteous. Again, we see the shift from a more formal argument about our legal status before God to now a personal description of what we experience. And finally, thirdly, one of the great differences between these two sections of Romans is that in Romans 5 to 8, it points us so solidly to the hope that every single believer has. Yes, Paul shows that Christ has finally and ultimately dealt with the sin question, and that is the theme of the first four chapters. But in chapters 5 to 8, he's pointing out that our ongoing struggle with sin will result in a great victory in which we will forever be perfected, never to struggle with sin again. And it's for all of these reasons that I call the first four chapters of this book the heart of the gospel, for in those chapters, Paul explains to us what the gospel actually is. The gospel tells us that in spite of the fact that we are dead in sin, Christ came and and died for us and that we through faith can be made new. But the next four chapters are rightfully called the power of the gospel. That's because it describes something that has occurred within the life of everyone who has truly believed. A radical transformation has taken place within the believer. Now, instead of outlining chapters 5 to 8 again, let me approach it by simply restating both the problems and the solution. Here's the problem. According to chapter 7, even while we know that we, that is, those of us who have indeed believed in Christ, are forgiven, we find that we still sin on occasion. Indeed, as we read through chapter 7, we are reminded of two significant truths. The first is that every person that believes has miraculously been given a new set of desires. Once we found that we had no appetite for the things of God, but now we find, according to Romans 7.22, that in our inner being, we find delight in the law of God. Indeed, the things of God that once seemed boring now captivate our souls. And by the way, this is true of everyone who has believed. I want to say to those of you who are listening, if you claim to have believed and yet do not have the things of God as your highest delight, I'm quite sure you've never believed. 
This is the principle of the new birth. The old is gone and a new has come. This is a reference to a born-again heart that finds a passionate delight in God and that this is our highest joy. And yet, according to Romans 7, we find another principle at work in us. The flesh, that old part of our humanity that still functions according to learned customs of rebellion against God, well, this wages a war against the new nature. And we find that many times the flesh simply overpowers our will so that we end up doing the very things that we hate. Furthermore, we find that simply whipping ourselves with the law or reminding ourselves of the commands of God, which are good, but doing this does not have the desired effect. The law comes without the power to change the inside. It simply reminds us of what God's demands are and that we have failed. And by the way, isn't this the problem with so many of us? We've truly believed, but we are overwhelmed by our failures. And so all we do is remind ourselves where we have failed and feel guilty and know we're not good Christians like we should be and deeply try to hide these facts from everyone else. How sad that so many Christians will spend a lifetime never getting beyond that point. But here we do well to remind ourselves of something that was done for us in our salvation. According to Romans 6, God has already accomplished things in us, and maybe, just maybe, instead of simply living through endless cycles of sins, followed by resolutions never to do this again, maybe we should listen up and hear what God has already done in us. According to Romans 6, when we came to Christ, we were united with him, both in his death and in his resurrection. Romans 6 verse 6 says that our old self was crucified with him. And in verse 11, we are told that we must consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And it's that word, consider, which actually means when you think about yourself, this is what you must think, for that is what is now true in you. More when we come back. Over the past few weeks, we've gained so much insight into Romans chapter 5 to 8 in learning about the power of the gospel. Whereas Paul begins this book with an emphasis on what is the gospel and how it saves sinners, now he transitions to a more personal tone. For believers, this is the heart of Romans, teaching us how the truth of the gospel empowers us to live in victory over sin and in accord with the Holy Spirit. There's much more to cover about how Romans 5 to 8 applies to our lives today and even speaks to those who may be far from God. So stay tuned right after the break. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcast, and publications. One of these resources includes the bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. Each issue features engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, Lathagain's Phil Calloway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. We encourage you to subscribe today to receive a free copy of our December issue mailed directly to your home. Now's the time to sign up if you haven't already. You won't want to miss the special Christmas reflections coming in the December issue. To subscribe or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 
2425. We ended by saying that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But Romans 6 adds one more thing. We must consider ourselves not as slaves of unrighteousness, but as slaves to Christ. We have, in our conversion, witnessed a change of ownership. Once we were owned by sin that leads to death, but now we are owned by Jesus, and as such, we have become slaves of righteousness. And by the way, what else do you think accounts for what you're experiencing? Why this hunger after the things of God that lives inside of you? And it is this experience that creates in you the very struggle that you have. Had you not been born again, you wouldn't be fighting with sin. You wouldn't be fighting at all. And so as it is, because our status has been changed, we must now not let sin win inside of us. We must fight it ruthlessly. We must, as Romans 8.13 says, to put to death the deeds of the body, for if we do not, we will die. You can't make peace with sin. You must learn how to fight. But what if the fight seems so hopeless, as some of us seem to confess? You know, the early parts of Romans 8, especially verses 3 to 4, are so very precious to us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Shorthand, we will never win this war against the flesh, but God already knew all of that. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. And if we learn to walk according to the Spirit or walk attentive to the promptings of the Spirit, we will find that we will, by the Holy Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now, you might be afraid, well, what if all this stuff just doesn't work? What if I try and I fail? But when you were born again, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fear, but you received the Holy Spirit who is called the spirit of adoption. You were bought and paid for by Christ, and the Holy Spirit sealed the deal with the guarantee that you are an heir to God's great fortune, created as his sons and daughters to rule over all the works of his hands. That's your future, so don't you fear. There's a kind of similarity that exists between the beginning of Romans 5 to 8 and its ending. Romans 5 begins with the words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Serving as a kind of bookends to this section, we are promised that the war between God and ourselves is over. Peace reigns and condemnation has once and for all been put away. Christ's victory over the cross ended all hostilities, and we are ushered into the throne room of God. Romans 5 reminds us that even when we suffer, this is no indication of God's displeasure, for God is only using the sufferings we experience to perfect his work in us. And Romans 8 reminds us that all things work together for the good to those who love God. Rather than furrowing our brows and wondering whether God is finally bringing us up to punishment, we rather learn that God is working to purify us so that the good work he has begun will be completed. 
Romans 5 ends by saying that in the end, grace will reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. And Romans 8 ends by assuring us that nothing in the end will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promise afforded to us in these chapters is that the ongoing work of holiness, even though at times may seem so painful that we may cry out, O wretched man that I am. That battle to mortify the flesh and live according to the Spirit, that great battle that every true believer is engaged in is a battle that every true believer will win. And with that, a few questions may remain. The first is the most obvious. How can I tell that I have truly begun to believe? Listen to Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now that's a telling verse. That verse does not indicate the difference between carnal and spiritual believers. That verse tells us the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. How do I know that? Well, look at the next verse, verse 6. The mind set on the flesh is death. Then verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Then over to verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Clearly, Paul is telling us the fundamental difference between those who believe and those who do not is the absorbing passion of their lives. Is your chief interest in life that you might know God? If it is, this was brought about in your conversion. If it is not, you've just never known Christ. You notice the key is not whether you have defeated all sin, but the key is whether Christ occupies chief place in your heart. You might be struggling with sin, and you are urged with utmost earnestness never to let the flesh win the fight. But when Christ stands chief among your affections, it is because you have been made an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. Here then is another question that needs to be answered. Can I be assured that God will not give up on me? We noticed in the end of Romans 8 that the Spirit is praying or interceding for us. He groans, and as he does, his groans are not groans of despair or disappointment in your lack of progress. Rather, his are the groans of anticipation as he awaits the day that you will be fully conformed into the image of God's Son. Indeed, we are told in no uncertain terms that God is not standing aloof from us, shaking his head in condemnation at our poor and ineffective attempts to grow in Christ. Rather, as Romans 8.31 so strongly affirms, God is for us. God is on our side. God will withhold no good thing from us. He will give us all that we need. Then one final question. Can I be assured that I will never give up on God and that I will continue to love him until Christ returns or calls me home through my own death? And the answer is unequivocal. Nothing but nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. Of all things that exist, not one thing can drive a wedge between you and your God who sealed you with the Holy Spirit and marked you as his own. And so if you're a Christian today, don't fear. Strive for holiness. Hate sin. Love God. Long for the day when you will be made complete and do not fear death or the second coming of Christ. And if today, through this study, you have concluded that you have never known God through Christ, might I strongly urge upon you, be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. Right now, wherever you are, I'm going to urge you to pray with me. 
You know, if you're driving in your car today, pull off to some safe place and let's together do business with God. Come to God now in faith and simply pray something like this. Lord God, I know that I'm a rebel against you, and I know that you don't occupy first place in my heart. I know I've followed and chased after every other thing, but not after you. Today I repent and I turn from that lifestyle and I turn to Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sin, even mine, and that you paid for it fully. And this day I trust fully in you. I put my faith in you. I throw myself unreservedly upon your grace. Here's my life, O Lord. Make of it what you want it to be. I will take your nail-pierced hands, and I will follow you all the way through to eternity. Amen. Now, if you've prayed that prayer for the first time today, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God and follow God and continue to follow his word and Christ will show you how to live and lead you all the way home to your inheritance. God bless you. John, this has been an incredible series, one that I think I'm going to have to listen to again just to absorb it all. But one thing I want to ask you about today's message, you made a distinction and it came through this. You talked about being a true believer and that Paul talks about it being the absorbing passion of our lives. Can you just draw that out a bit more for us? Yeah, I think it's not possible to know Christ and not have a heart that cries after God. I mean, you know, the, the psalmist, I believe it's Psalm 42, as the deer pants after streams of water, so my soul pants after you. And every true believer can read that and say, that's exactly what I'm experiencing in my own life. And, and you know, it is sometimes true that somebody can, can think that they're a part of that community, but they look inside themselves and see no such absorbing passion. And that should indicate for them that there is a work that's left undone, and they should seek after God until they have that same experience. This has been a wonderfully encouraging and yet also convicting series on Romans chapter 5 to 8. For every believer, these are foundational truths about how to live out the gospel, empowered and filled with the Spirit. These are truths that we so often need to hear again and again. Paul gives us much warning and instruction here about putting off sin and striving for righteousness in our daily walk. But there is victory promised by leaning on Christ and what he's already done through the gospel. So as we conclude this series today, let us continue to reflect on and apply these timeless truths, some even for the very first time. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things scripture calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever-present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Newfeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. 
As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.